0: We're going to start off in Mark chapter 3. I thought it was interesting that Andy asked me to teach this one. When I first went to Lipscomb, I took uh, preaching, uh, communicating the gospel with John York, and this was actually a text he gave me for my first sermon. Uh-oh. I don't know how well I did at that sermon, but I passed the class. <laughs> Alright, so it starts out in chapter 3 with an interesting transition where it says, Again, Jesus enters the synagogue. So here we go again. Previously, we've seen some things he's done. We've seen where he has healed people. In the midst of one time he was teaching, they tore the house up just to get somebody in front of him. So he healed that guy. Um, He's called a big stir in this city, in around Capernaum, Nazareth region, Galilee, and it looks like we're still in that region. And in this point, they make a point to mention that he enters the synagogue again, and it's almost like, if you're reading along with the story, it's almost like Mark is trying to let you know, something's about to happen with Jesus here. Again, he enters the synagogue, and it says, there was a man there who had a withered hand. Me and my wife were talking about this last night, and I was wondering, I'm like, could this guy have been a plant? You know, what's the odds that we have a gentleman with a withered hand waiting in the synagogue? He hadn't been there before, or had he? Who knows? But it's interesting how Mark frames this. Again, he enters the synagogue, and then there was a man there with a withered hand, and they watched this seed. Here we go, y'all. Get your teacups ready. Everybody wants to see what Jesus is about to get into. Because this guy, Now we look now. Here he comes in. And you can see, I just want you to put this in a panoramic view in your mind. Here comes Jesus into the building. And all of a sudden, everything segues to the guy with the withered hand. And then you can see it pan back to Jesus. Because everybody's watching like, what's he going to do? This is the Sabbath. And here's a guy with a withered hand. You know what he's done on these other days. What Do you think he's going to do it today? Everybody's in awe about what's about to happen. Can you feel the anticipation as you read Mark in that? And look what they're trying to do. It's not anticipation because they're happy and want to see something great. But look at why they have this anticipation. They're ready to accuse him of something bad. Now, if I had a withered hand and I'm sitting there and this man's able to heal me, I don't see anything bad with that. You know, I, I see something great because my life has been, you know, quite diminished with my hand withered and the, with the, or atrophied. And but everybody else is sitting in there looking at it as this is going to be a scandal. You know, it's kind of what like watching this Antonio Brown thing playing out <laughs> with the Patriots right now. What will he do next? <laughs> so that's where we're at in this. So it says, he said to the man with the withered hand, "Come forward." And Then he said to them. Here's my question I like. Is it lawful to do good or to harm on the Sabbath or to save save life or to kill? And everybody sat there and they looked at him. And the Bible says that they were silent. was a thought brought up as me and my wife were studying over there this week. She looked at him and says, do you think he was kind of foreshadowing? I'm like, what do you mean? She said... Well, he knows what he's going to do. At the same time, he understands that when he does what he has to do, that they're going to plot to kill him the very next moment. Because the Bible says after he heals this man, what, it, what do they do? They go meet up with the political leaders of the area, the Herodians, the people who support, the Jews who support Herod, and they begin to conspire. So just healing people in this region, Jesus has upset the political flow of things that now you're pulling in people who support powerful people and you're now, because here's the thing, let's put it in a a 21st century context. Here we are in church and all of a sudden you start to talk to people who have influence to politicians that can possibly affect this person. That's power. When you start upsetting something to the point that, oh, I got to go talk to the local councilman about this, or I got to go talk to this person It wasn't, notice what they didn't do. They didn't go to the religious leaders. They went to the Herodians. So Jesus, when he sees this guy and he asks that question, I think it might be a situation of, I'm going to give life today. I'm about to restore life to this man who had his life diminished by a natural thing, but I'm about to fix this. Is it better for me to do that or for you to conspire to kill me? Kind of like a foreshadowing there. It, it kind of, it's really deep into this situation because we know Christ and what he was about. And it's intriguing that being the person he is, look at what type of response it always solicited. You know? It's not like he was out there promoting him. Think about it. He's not in the synagogue preaching a, a a gospel of let's go kill the empire. Let's go throw down the Romans. Let's go do this. He's saying, come here. Stretch forth your arm." But he gets a response of an insurrectionist because he's healing people on the Sabbath. And the interesting piece about that healing on the Sabbath too, we also have to think about I know that with though the argument out there, as good Jewish people is, you're doing work. But whose work is this that's being done? Who else can do what Jesus has just done other than the one that created the rule about the Sabbath? And I think, if we're not mistaken, shortly before this in chapter 2, he mentions that man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for what? The man. So he flips their understanding of everything on that ear. And I don't want us to be too hard on our, on our uh, people here. Because let's think about who they are. They're folks that have evidently known Jesus. He's not an unknown person in this region. You know, he's grown up most of his mid, early teens up to now in this region with these people. You know, probably working side by side. He was in the synagogue with them. So they know each other. You know, this is like one of us who've been together for four or five years, 20 years and then we all went to the same seminary or the same Bible class, and all of a sudden one day you haven't really been anywhere to be educated, and you just come out talking this next-level stuff. We tend to have this suspiciousness about us as humans. So their response is kind of intriguing, you know, yet with us it's kind of appropriate because we still kind of do things like that today. At least I know what happened to me in my home church <laughs> when I went back home after getting my degrees and I got looked at kind of suspicious. So, but The people that were really, uh, seems like the people that were watching the Catholic Jesus doing this were the religious leaders. Mm. It, it doesn't sound like it was so much, I didn't get the sense that it was so much the day-to-day people, but people who were in power, because that's what was the challenging thing to them okay. and, and it does amaze me that here is some miracle that's happened I mean it's just incredible and they just push I, it aside yeah I just just amazing when you try to take power away from somebody who has power that's that's kind of the response is people will do anything to right. retain that power and that's a good point y'all make because think about it too when you start that that, that that shift in the dynamic of power, I don't care how good anything he is to the people who have power, it's awful. They could, he could have raised that man from the dead right there, and they would still be heated at him because the power shift is happening. What's a power shift? Now he becomes an authority. He becomes something that you were. Because what was it, the scribes and the Herodians conspired. These people were folks that they looked up to. It just wasn't like you said what no dude these were the folks that people look up to and now here comes this jack leg dude out of nowhere and he's healing folks he's he's giving us a teaching with authority he's messing with my paycheck he's messing with my own self esteem cuz nobody's coming to me with the issues they're following him around and what do we find in the next pericope of this he has multitudes He has the multitudes. And let's look at Mark. Mark, I like how he puts this together. So after we have an issue with them trying to uh, conspire against him, he immediately gives us this snapshot. He says, Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. But he doesn't stop there. Look what he does and says. Hearing all that he was doing, they came to him in great numbers from Judea. From Ju- uh, Jerusalem, Edomia, beyond the Jordan, and a region around Tyre and Sidon. Okay, let's stop for a quick second there. Anybody think you can you, can you grasp why the significance of naming a city inside of a region you just called was important? Because he started out regionally with the names. Is, uh, you had what? Numbers from Judea. Jerusalem sits in Judea. Okay. They're not separate. Jerusalem's inside Judea. Then you have Idumea, which is south of Judea. Then you have beyond the Jordan, which is Transjordan, which is the eastern side eastern side of Jordan. Then you have Tyre and Sidon. That's more back north of Galilee. These folks are coming from everywhere. But why mention the city of Jerusalem? Why do you think that is that Mark says this? That's the oh, Say it one more time. That's the powerhouse. That's the powerhouse. Exactly. This is your seat of power. Because that's where your temple is. That's where your people who are running this religious group. They're all in Jerusalem. So now you're not just pulling people from the region, you're pulling that's like saying we got somebody here teaching, and they're pulling people from the Vatican to come listen. Is what it's, he's trying to show you that even the folks in Jerusalem. Are leaving there to come here and hear this man from all over. They're beginning to follow him, and Jesus has shifted this power so much so it's just not in our little bitty town anymore. It's affecting everywhere around us. He has shifted the dynamic, and anytime we shift the dynamic, somebody's about to get mad. And he, yes, sir. It's also significant higher inside. Mm. And beyond your those were Gentile people, otherwise. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Mm, exactly. So, not only do we have good Jews, we got them other folks. He's tracking them other folks now. You know them folks that we don't associate. The Jews don't associate with them folks. Also, them other people on that Jordan over there. we we, we don't talk to them, but. He's pulling them out there. They're coming to him. So something has got to be wrong with this fella. He's pulling them all over from all these places. So here we go now. We got, we have Jewish. We got Jewish people for sure, right? Now, most definitely, we have Gentiles. Gentile, but for sure we're outside the synagogues now if he's pulling these folks. Because here, when we were just dealing with Jews, we deal with people in the synagogue mainly, because that's where we started this out at. Again, he enters the synagogue. So definitely we got people from Judea, and we have Jerusalem. What's well, the interesting piece about E.J. Down, Way south. Close, close to and had an overlap with the and uh, uh, the hmm This is Herod's people. Remember they said Herodians, supporters, but now you actually got his ethnic group because he's Edomadian or Edomite, some sort of like fortress there or something. Sure did. Yeah. He had several. was it like 9 or 10 he had out in the desert near the Dead Sea? Yeah. Masada's the most famous right. I remember that, but he had a lot of those desert fortresses. (laughs) I think you're right, it was, I think it is one here. Because he had them scattered out throughout that region, and if something happened, he he should be close to one of those. And he had enough supplies stocked into that he could stay there for a while. If anybody knows the story about the the Zealots uh, in the Siege of 73, when we had to get the Roman legions to come down through Jerusalem to recapture Jerusalem. Then they chased the uh, zealots down into Masada where they held out for six months in that desert until Rome finally built a land ramp. They were taught the Roman soldiers by releasing water out to let them see it, and they didn't have it. But that was one of Herod's fortresses. So we have Judea, De- Jerusalem, Eternaia. So we're even pulling people from that far south. So, he's now doing something here. He's bringing these people together because they're hearing about it. Now, I'm not saying they're agreeing about anything. But what I'm saying is two groups of people who couldn't be together at one time now see this man and they start gravitating to him. And that's something. When you see something good in life and it's changing life like Jesus, His power is able to bring groups who are usually uh, diametrically opposed. They'll come together because of who's in the middle. That's the driving force of Christ. You know, when we can tap into that fully, we're going to be dynamite. But this is what he's doing now. Just by the teaching he's doing up north and the healing he's been doing, folks have began to just gravitate to him. And look what they say. It's at verse 9. He told the disciples... To have a boat ready for him because the crowd was so that they would not crush him. My goodness. you got that many people. I don't know if any of y'all remember, but back in the 1980s, Michael Jackson. Do y'all remember the the video shots of the concert they would have overseas? And they're trying to get Michael in and out of the stadiums and stuff. How the crowd was pressed in on him. This is what's happening to the Lord. The disciples are not just disciples, they're bodyguards. Because they're having to try to get him to a boat so the people who are trying to scramble to get to him won't crush him because they're trying to get to him that much. That's how many people that Mark is trying to give us an idea are pressing up on the Lord, trying to get to him. Um, It says in verse 10, For he had cured many, so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, You are the Son of God! But he sternly ordered them not to make him known. We got mass hysteria, folks. Not only do we have people coming from all over, we got the situation where the crowd around him is so great, he says, I got to get off the land and get onto a boat because they're going to end up hurting me trying to get to me. They're clamoring to get to Jesus. Because they heard that he's healed people. They just want to touch him. If they could just touch him, they'll be all right. You know, I, I remember watching those videos back in the day when I was a kid. And, and those Michael Jackson videos, little girls would be standing in the front. Michael! If they, if they touch him, they would just go crazy. I can imagine this being Jesus. I can see Jesus, and these people trained, to these, pain, these people in pain, who have been racked in pain, need healing, stretching, clamoring, just trying to get to him. But it's so much around him It's making it hard And he finally has to get in the boat And and get off the shore I know we read some text in Matthew And maybe in Luke where he had to get in the boat And actually teach Because of the crowds You know this is something else And Mark is like building up the anticipation To show you this is what's upsetting The power brokers This is what's upsetting them because now The people aren't so dependent upon them They're becoming dependent upon this Jesus this Jesus of Nazareth, who really, we don't know where he came from, except for to say he's from Nazareth. Even his own people don't understand what's going on. Let me keep going for I jump too far. All right. So we have people coming from all different walks in life, probably different demographics also. But here's another thing that's kind of weird. spirits are confessing him. They're acknowledging who he is. Which, he doesn't want an acknowledgement from a demon or unclean spirit, so he's silencing them. But the thing is happening in the midst of these crowds. That unclean spirits coming in contact with him are forced are forced by his mere presence to confess who he is. I always wondered if I always thought unclean spirits were their way of describing illness or disease or that kind of thing. But at the same time, it sounds like it's actually vocal. And I wonder, was he the only one that could hear that? Or did the, did other people hear it? I, too, am curious about that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it was uh, what we call illnesses today. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I mean, because certain mental illnesses can manifest physically in different situations. Um, so that wouldn't be uncommon. And to even think that something of an outside force, such as an unclean spirit, that could cause this, that wouldn't be surprising to me. I think in our day and time we have used science to explain away some things, but I have always wondered if this is something they just said to him, Or is it something that he heard inside of them? Because, you know, earlier he said that he heard the hardness of their hearts. They didn't say this stuff out loud, but he heard it. Uh, And I think it was in chapter 2. So I'm wondering, I've always wondered that too, but I don't know. I'm not going to conjecture on that. I'm not even sure. But it is an intriguing thought. Uh, thank you for bringing it up. Well, it's it? always made me uneasy. I don't like all that, <laughs> all that going on. I know, right? <laughs> I, I, I'm with you on that. I, I'm, to- I'm in total agreement with that. Because this, I mean, when I read that the first time, I remember being a kid and I read this. I'm like, the unclean spirits are telling folks who this man is. You know? And he's even telling them, oh, shh, shh, be quiet. You can't talk. Shut up. And they're listening. This is outstanding that, in the midst of all this stuff that's going on, he's even silencing the lips of his opposition, who's actually confessing who he really is. But he realizes that that testimony could be worse than anything else, you know, because somebody does later call him the Beelzebub later on in this text. You know, let's keep moving into what he does next. So we get this picture, pulling all these people together, people clamoring to get to Jesus, unclean spirits, talking about who he is, and what does he do next? It says, he went up to the mountain and called to him those who he wanted. And they came to him, and he appointed the twelve, who he named apostles, to be with him and to be sent out to proclaim the message, and to have authority to cast out demons. So he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, whose name he, whose name he gave Boanerges, Bo-ne- uh, that is, the sons of thunder, and Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and son, Simon the Canaan, and Judas Iscariot which betrayed him. So there now we name Jesus' group, the group he chose. Okay, out of this mass of people who've been following, he chooses these guys. Now, were they the best of the best? I have no earthly idea. I'm kind of suspect on Peter. So, <laughs> just being honest. But he chose these people, even to the point he chose the one that would betray him. We had to get through that there had to be a Judas. There had to be a Judas somewhere. But he chose that Judas. So these are the twelve he chose. And then look at what they do to him next. When we get around about verse 19B. It says that he goes home. Where's his home at? Anybody remember what we talked about previous weeks? Where do we know that Jesus lives at currently? Or it say he lives? I think it's Capernaum, right? Jesus says, "When when he returned to Capernaum after some days, you're reported that he was at home." So we go back to Capernaum. So we just had this mini Jesus tour that rocked the whole region. All right, all the great things happened. he was healing people. People were clamoring to get to him, and he, he had to get to a boat just to keep from being crushed by the people. Unclean spirits confessing who he is. He picks out his his main guys, his twelve. Now he goes home. After all this, you think you would need a rest. Yes sir. Going back to the 12, mm-hmm. you see the significance of 12 reconstituted of the children. This oh, yes. made a real big statement to the 12, 12 numbers are very, very important in, in the Bible, 12, and even after duty his, area, mm-hmm. his writing, and They need one more so they have that more right? Sure enough, he's right. Twelve is a very important number because of the 12 tribes of Israel. And a good Jewish person would see that. They would see it and understand, hold up. He picked 12. What's he trying to say? What's he what's the statement he's making? I'm like I don't have a microphone, so I know that's not feedback. <laughs> what is the Lord saying in the choose another twelve? And then after he chose it, he goes back home, colonel And says, what, what does it say again? And the crowds came together again, so that they could not even eat. Man. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him. <clears throat> For people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, uh-oh. These aren't your usual Galilee scribes. <laughs> These are the scribes from Jerusalem. We're in trouble now. Because mm-hmm. the, you know, the minor league scribes couldn't handle it. So now we're in the, the major league scribes now from Jerusalem. And it says, those scribes, when they came down, they saw him, he said, oh, got an answer for this situation. He has Baal's above, and by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. So what do we do now? We're going to run a smear campaign. we got to run a smear campaign to defame this guy because he's drawing too many people. Now, here's the thing, folks. I want you all to also put this in the context that This is not the first man that has drawn people to him in this fashion. All right? Now, can't say these other guys did healing and stuff like that, but prior to Jesus, there were other people that had come before him that had drawn people in and ended up leading them to their deaths prior to him coming. So the Messianic, the, the, the Mashiach for the people, if this ain't real, we don't need another ride. If he's causing look what he's doing, he's stirring up these people. These people are coming to him, and if we're not careful, Rome might think this is a riot about to happen. And what's the most important thing during this period? Pax Romana. we got to keep the peace of Rome. And if Jesus is threatening this peace, we got issues. And so right now, there's a buzz going around. We had not really heard it said by the people yet, but you can understand these thoughts are beginning to form. He's healing people. Casting out demons. Folks are coming from everywhere. You don't think this could be the Messiah. Do you? Oh Lord, here we go with that talk again. We got a problem coming. So you see, under now you can kind of understand why the Herodians are getting into it. Because now they're trying to figure out what's going on with this guy. Is this a danger to our people? We don't want the Romans to come down in here and kill us because he stirred up folks. Because we know how Rome does. Rome's peace is desolation. They'll come through, kill everybody, and call it peace. That's what they did. So they don't want this. They understand that if this gets too big, this could be a, a, a problem. Especially knowing these other cats who've done stuff like this before. They're aware of these people. You know how we are. We hear about things like that, and we get kind of, eh, hold on. I don't know about this right now. Oh, he did what? He healed somebody. Was that person really sick? Or is this another Benny Hinn thing? <laughs> so that's uh, uh, I hate to say it's a healthy bit of skepticism there, and at the same time, self-defense. Because if you're thinking about things that happened before, and these people led folks out in the desert and they got murdered, and kill, that would be something in the back of my mind thinking about okay, I know he's doing all this stuff but is this real or is it like these other guys were? I'll be afraid of that. You see what I'm saying? So they have to be careful. They have to be hesitant. They can't just jump full well into this because they've seen people do some some interesting things before. And you know how humans can be. You know? If we found something we believe to be good, We'll fall into it like a flock. Jim Jones, Branch Davidians. Those people really wholeheartedly believed in what these people were teaching. So they fell in. I can't think of the other color it was that had to put on those white smocks and Adidas that they going to kill themselves in a certain amount of time and jump on the tail of this comet that was coming through our solar system at the time. Was that the moon? Hellbonding. Yeah. Which one? I don't know. It was either the Moonies or somebody. It was something like that. But they believed that this celestial star, it was a new earth or something. They were going to—they ended their life here in this body. They would get into that comet and out. That's what they thought. This is the type of hysteria we're trying to avoid. Okay, that's what these religious leaders are looking at. It's just not, it's a power shift, yes. But at the same time, they're thinking about the people. Because they understand a lot of innocent people can be hurt if this dude's, a, if he's not the real deal. You see that? That that could be a part of this thinking. Not just that they're jealous of him. I don't want to paint the picture that we're just dealing with jealous folks. Don't get me wrong, I believe jealousy's in there. But at the same time, we gotta contextualize what we're dealing with. And they also probably have this apprehension of could he be the real deal this time? Or is he like these other uh, people we've had before? The irony <clears throat> is he was the real thing and a lot of people did too, Yeah. For different reasons. For different reasons. That is the big irony Do you think like in part of the text that says that like even his friends Kind of suspected he was getting Carried away with himself Like even the people closest to him I think still were right. like Even his brother, I mean like I said His brothers and, and mother and everybody Were trying to come get him You know um, Where was it at? And if we go on to the end it talks about uh, It says your mother and your brothers and sisters Are outside asking for you It got so crazy that they who were raised with him, you can't tell me they didn't see what he had been doing at home. The things that had happened. Even Mary, what happened when they saw when he was 12. These brothers and sisters, you can't tell me they didn't see it. So why do they think he's crazy now? Even Mark said they thought he was out of his mind. So that's kind of intriguing. That's always perplexed me. Truly have been because they're like oh he's like every, you know the other people are like oh he's crazy because he's claiming all these things or you're crazy for drawing this kind of attention to yourself because you know what's going to happen. did. Okay. It irony the whole situation. All their fear came through. They did. It did for different reasons because the difference between him and the other folks is that even after you kill him, rather than dispersing the people, they dispersed for a quick second, but then they came together and coalesced to form the biggest religion in the world. That's the thing that was unorthodox, uh, according to the previous folks. Because when they cut the head off of that, that movement, they went to the four wings. But when Jesus, when it happened with him, these people came back together and it flourished. The more you did something to them, the more they grew and grew and grew. And, I mean, with God, it's kind of interesting to see this in his narrative. You see the story of how God's people, when persecuted, they grow the most. Look at the Israelites. Look at Christians. We're not built to be in comfortable positions y'all. just be honest with you. We're built for the tough stuff. Because in that tough stuff of life and that messiness and murkiness, that's when Christ really gets down and does work. You see it. He brings more people. In the, Look at where he's at when he talks to the people. He didn't go to the place to be sitting at the t- tables with the fine dining people, the religious leaders. He's out here with a parent to do with a hand that needed help. He's got a crowd of people who are sick. These people weren't really well. They were trying to be healed. You know? He went, this is almost basically the equivalent of him walking into a sick ward of people, a terminal pit ward. And all those people hear about the healings that are taking place, flopping out of beds, crawling to get to him. I think about, when I thought of, listen to this, and I was just sitting back and meditating over this other day. I thought about the woman with the issue of blood, the unclean woman with the issue of blood, that fought her way through a crowd just to touch the hem of the garment, just to grab it, to become whole again. This man did so much in such a short amount of time, he was the equivalent of a nuclear bomb being dropped in a spiritual way on these folks man. His reverberations of the aftershocks are still being felt to this very day because of the stuff, the profound information that we get from Jesus and his teachings his living, it it still perplexes most to what we're seeing here just even in this text. Every time I read this it just astounds me To what he would do and how he would say it. You know? And in my imagination, just trying to imagine how he was sitting there and people telling him he's teaching in the midst of his teaching. And all of a sudden you hear your mom, your brothers, and sisters are here to to get you. Not to come hear you, but to come get you, because they don't even think you right. Being a person, being a teacher. You know that would be a heartbreaking thing to hear. My mama thinks I'm crazy because of what I'm teaching. You know that's a heartbreaking thing to have your own very brothers and sisters think you've lost your mind, because these are the people who know you the best. However, he pressed on through this, and what did he say? Who are my, who are my mother and my brother? And looking at who sat around, him, he says, "Oh." Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother my and my sister and my mother. I'm like, wow, that's a profound statement in that moment. So as we begin to close out here, because we're at 1046, I'm sorry it took you so long. But this is deep, y'all. I like digging into this stuff. We could be here all night with me. Um, but here with Jesus, I think one big thing to take away from this is is that the light of Christ within the person that we walk as we walk, it will have a catastrophic effect on the economic on the economic policies of darkness. So much so that those spirits will begin to try to sabotage what you do, even to the point that you utilize your own blood to do. it. Even in that moment, we must realize what our goal is, what our job is. And what our mission, missional thrust is, that we must push even through the opposition of our own family if we know we have Christ in our purview and in our foreview. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. Oh, do we have any questions? (laughs) Y'all have a great day. See you later. Thanks a lot. Thank you.